today I believe that you need three hammers. What I mean by we need three hammers is that their one hammer solution is not quite there yet. But I think the early adopters are dramatically going to get rewarded because if they can start to feel like, hey, I have two out of the three hammers in my business, it dramatically starts to bring efficiencies that they never thought of before. And the crazy part, Sam, is like the accuracy of these tools are absolutely insane because just in content creation or just in contract review or things like that, it's super powerful. So I believe that the early adopters are going to be significantly rewarded to understanding how three hammers work. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner, Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. For more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier for your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. And to get new episodes of Elevate directly to your inbox, sign up at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey, everyone. It's Sam here. My guest today has two decades of business and operational experience across the real estate, finance, and technology sectors. You may have heard of him on his business school podcast, on his four-week MBA, or you might be a fan of his VIP emails. I've been on his list for years and really enjoy them. He's been on our podcast before, and if you've been to the Business of Real Estate or ARIC last year, you might have been wowed by his approach to growth. He's now the president of fast-growing US brokerage Real, so I'm pleased to welcome back to the show, Sharan Shravatsa. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for having me back. And also, I mean, my interest in AI has been no secret for the past year and, and how it impacts real estate. And Real have made some very interesting and early advancements in this area. So I'm also delighted to welcome to the show, Pratesh Damani, who is Real's CTO. And he's actually been described to me as one of the coolest dudes in the industry. So Pratesh, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me all. Looking at your backgrounds and things like that, you're definitely two of the coolest dudes in the industry for sure. She doesn't know about the background. <laughs> Should I tell her or no? <laughs> yeah, tell me about the background. What Pratesh and I wanted to do was we wanted to create, just like you, Sam, a great studio. And so I said, well, what could we do which is different? So when someone can actually like see what you're doing and it's different. And so I actually had a graffiti mural artist come and draw all the walls in my office with all the things that I love. And then after I drew it and I did the first kind of reveal to my partners and to Pratesh, he was like, hey, Sharan, move out of the way. And he screenshotted my background. And so now it looks like we both had the same office, which is kind of fun. <laughs> that is cool. But so this is fake. Right. That's and not, his is real. Right. No pun intended or pun intended. That's right. <laughs> real. Interesting. So the last time we chatted like this, Sharan, you just exited tellies. Fast forward a few years now. And as I mentioned in my intro, you're now the president and in charge of growth for real, which was already one of the fastest growing brokerages in the US. What attracted you to the business? Yeah, so uh, can I share a, a very vulnerable personal story, especially for those that heard my previous show with you, Sam, is that when we had a chance to build and grow Telus, we grew it from one office and roughly 20 agents to 22 offices, 700 agents. We were doing close to $5 billion in sales volume overall. And it was a great operation. Our business got acquired by Doug Sullivan. And it's taken me a long time to kind of state this publicly, but just me and my partners in the transaction won when the business was sold the 700-ish agents, yeah, they found a great new home at Douglas Elliman, but they did not get a piece of all the proceeds we did. 
So for a while, a couple of years after the transaction, it was really hard on me. I felt like these 700 agents who had helped us build and grow this amazing business, yeah, they had a new home, but I felt like I was, there was no method for me to share in the success of the business or the growth with them. And so I always told myself, you know, the next opportunity that I have, we're going to find a model which is some form of employee-owned, like an employee-owned model or a model which uh, shares stock and ownership across everyone else. And so when I met our founder and our CEO, Tamir Polek, I shared with him this vision and I said, hey, I wrote a business plan that the next time this happens, which I know I wanted to because this is the game I'm in, I want to make sure that I am second and everyone else is first on this because I have a debt to repay. And he laughed at me and he said, hey, you don't have to look any further because we already built the model. It has already started to get traction. If you really want to make this your home, you know, with what you want to do, you can completely take this to a new level. And so that was the beginning of the conversation. And now we get to build this and grow this together. And the cool part is we don't have just agents at real anymore. We call them all partners because they either own a piece of the company with us, they partner in revenue share opportunities with us, and everything that we do, we call them partners. And we know that anything that happens with the growth of the business is going to not only impact Pratesh and me and our partners, but also all of them too. And that was the big reason for kind of embarking on this next journey. And Pratesh as well, you're the CTO. What drew you to the business? So for 15 to 18 years now, I've done technology startups. Like, uh, so towards my fourth startup, which was a real estate startup, before that, I was in sports and Hollywood. And then the fourth one was real estate. And the way I got into it was we were buying and investing in real estate properties. And I was just frustrated with how we were organizing our search and keeping our notes. And it was a bunch of Excel sheets, honestly. And I was starting to think about doing something new. And I wanted to build a marketplace where buyers would come in, collaborate with their families and with their agents on one Pinterest-like board. Imagine Pinterest and Asana, like Pinterest and Slack put together for real estate, right? So I started building that and I was bothering Tamir for three years straight to partner or like be my customer for like a enterprise brokerage deal. At some point, it made sense for them to acquire my company. So Real acquired Realty Crunch, which was my company, like exactly three years ago. Yeah. And I joined forces with and then we started building Real. So today, I do want to take a bit of a deep dive into technology and particularly AI because We've had ChatGPT around for a, a year now, so everyone's kind of had a bit of time to get used to this new revolution. Sharon, firstly, how do you think tools like large language models like ChatGPT, Bard, Claude, all of those things are going to impact the real estate industry and what sort of uptake have you seen in the US? Yeah, I think that it would be unfair for an agent to not have the advantage of at least having awareness around what it is. So can every single agent, can every single real estate professional actually utilize AI in their business? Maybe, maybe not. I think the early adopters are going to get dramatically rewarded for one big reason. I'll actually tell you my reason, and I haven't even shared this with Pratesh, is that today I believe that you need three hammers. What I mean by we need three hammers is that their one hammer solution is not quite there yet. For example, you could go to a suite of Google products in one solution, just in Google Docs. You can do everything. You can make tables, you can link things out, you can do all of those things. But when it comes to AI right now, there's such these specialized tools. So you almost need three hammers in place of one. So if you are recording a Zoom call, well, you may need Otter AI to actually like record that call. That's one hammer. Then you have to take the Otter AI transcript and put it into ChatGPT and see what it may spit out with, with some good prompts. So that's your second hammer. 
Then you actually take that and put it into a presentation creation app or a piece of AI. And then now you have your third hammer. So you can't just go from the integration of tools are not quite there yet, but I think the early adopters are dramatically going to get rewarded because if they can start to feel like, hey, I have two out of the three hammers in my business, it dramatically starts to bring efficiencies that they never thought of before. And the crazy part, Sam, is like the accuracy of these tools are absolutely insane because just in content creation or just in contract review or things like that, it's super powerful. So I've been thinking about this idea of how long is it going to take us to go from three hammers to two hammers to just the one hammer that we need to do the hammers work? So I believe that the early adopters are going to be significantly rewarded to understanding how three hammers work. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, someone asked me how to do SEO with AI the other day, and there was three hammers. Like you would need to use Bard or something like that to generate some keyword ideas. Then you would need to put it into another tool. I'd use Low Fruits to work out which of those keywords has got the traffic. And then the third one is to then go and write the article. So I see how that three hammers works. It's really cool. And that's been a driving force on thinking of all of this, but Patesh probably has a better answer to it. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's definitely early, right? So I know we're one year into this thing and people are no longer trying to guess what it is. They know what it does. At the same time, I think there's evolutionary, like the revolution was the launch of JGPT, and now we're going to see a lot of evolutionary stuff, right? So we're going to see things that are features, not products sometimes. A good example would be create a marketing presentation for me or create a listing presentation for me or create a listing description for me. I consider those, or at least we consider those features, not products. Like any off-the-shelf, well-trained model will be able to do a reasonably good job at giving you a listing description because it's just been trained on so much data. Is it something that you can charge for beyond what ChatGPT Premium is already? Like probably not maybe for the first three months until people figure out that it's all commodity, right? So, however, there are products out there that will take a picture of your room and stage it for you. And I think there's some value there. At the same time, is that a feature or is that a product? So I think the market is trying to understand where things are. But again, like early adoption and truly understanding these things will obviously have value on the longer term. And you're ahead because you're not catching up to a bunch of stuff. Brad Inman said last year that our imaginations aren't big enough to see what's coming. What are your thoughts on that, Sharon? I think he's right, and I'll tell you why. Patesh will describe how we built, you know, uh, Leo, which is our internal AI. And I'd be first to tell you I was kind of like skeptical because I know not about the quality of the AI that Patesh and the team are going to build, not about that, but the adoption from the agent's perspective. Because now we all know agents are like, well, now I got one more tool to use, one more tool to learn. How is this going to help me? And there's a lot of the early aspects of, hey, I'm going to try this. And if it's not good right away, I'm just going to sideline it right away. Because there's a lot of tools being shared with us. And so from a broader perspective, I actually believe that we're not thinking big enough because the ability for these tools to do things are amazing. So that's why whenever I can find an example, Sam, of something that is mind-blowing, I always like to use that to showcase what a piece of AI can do. So for example, a lot of real estate folks in the real estate industry are jumping on this content bandwagon. They realize that they need to put more content out there, maybe long form, call it in a podcast or a show format, or in shorter form as well. But unless you make a significant investment in a team, thinking about the hooks, being very platform specific, like you can take this, the, the days of actually chopping up, taking the one video, chopping it up in one place and putting the same video everywhere are gone. That don't exist anymore because I could take the same video, put it on Instagram and have great traction 
but put it on TikTok and get no traction at all unless the caption, how it's cut, is recustomized for it. But when I show people a demo where I can upload like one Zoom call and hit a button and have a piece of AI just chop it all up into 14, 15 different short clips, they would have never been able to do. I think it starts to get them to open their minds from an effort to reality perspective. So I think it's our responsibility as kind of early adopters on this to show more examples of things that have always been hard to do, but to show them like, wow, like there is a demo component that is more important today than any other time because just having somebody read an article on what a piece of AI can do is not good enough. They have to see it. And I think that's what opens up their mind. Yeah, absolutely. Wait till you see me chop this podcast up, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) In all different ways. But turning to Leo for a moment. So tell me about the inspiration behind Leo and how did you approach its development? Sure. So right from the beginning, like the strategy at Real was that we were going to build things. And I know it sounds very weird, but you're in the industry and you would probably resonate with this is like most brokerages in the industry are plumbers is like how I call them. Plumbers means like you buy a lot of third party technology and you plumb it together with a single sign on. You put an authentication layer on top of it and you can sign in with my username password into this tool into this tool, this tool, and this tool. This tool does your transaction management. This tool does your document signatures. This tool does your billing for you. This tool does mailing campaigns for you. This tool produces PDFs for you, right? And it's not, I don't say this in a negative way. I think because their core business is brokerage, not building technology, right? And that's the reason this happens, right? But when Real started the thesis and the reason I got on board was it was a technology brokerage. It was technology and then brokerage, not brokerage that had technology, right? So our thesis was that our operating margins were going to be tight and we're going to have to build something that was going to scale out of the gate. And that meant we had to automate everything. We had to capture everything. We had to capture every data point and every little screen and every little workflow that happened. So if you're using third-party products, you can't control. You can't control the data. You can't control where it goes. You can't control how it's stored. Sometimes you don't even have access to it, like via APIs or whatever. Sometimes you do have access to APIs. So we had committed to building a platform that was going to be all-inclusive. By the time February 2023 rolled around, around the time when GPT came on and everything was like exploding, we had already built our own transaction platform, our document signature platform. And to do business with us, our agents only use our products. We don't license any third-party product, period. So other than some social network products that we use, but that's not core to our business, right? And then GPT came along. We had total control over our data and it made the obvious use case, which was like, hey, let's put a LLM or a GPT on top of our data and make it meaningful. So what came out was, oh, every agent could have a personal concierge. So we were not in the business of putting a screen on top of chat GPT, calling it real GPT and like saying, hey, we invented AI and like you can do listening presentations. Like that was not interesting. It's honestly like smoke and mirrors in many ways because eventually people figured out that all it is is a GPT solution. With us, our idea was that you can, basically it's your assistant. So you can come in and ask a question like, how much money did I make last month? And that's an example of data that we have that we've already crunched that now becomes available in the AI and answer to you in a meaningful way. Here's another example. What do I need to do to get this deal done? They could literally today type it in and our Leo will respond, which deal? And it will like prompt you five deals. And you say, this one. And say, to do close this deal, you need 
to upload document A, document B, and document C. Your broker will approve it, and then this deal will get done. Right. So the inspiration was, hey, we have all this data, and we have this opportunity, but we don't want to be just be like another plumber on top of GPT. So let's build something that can actually take advantage of the data. So we found ourselves in a very unique situation that you know very rarely companies find themselves in. Wow. Firstly, that's amazing. My next question was going to be, how do you get agents to actually use the tool? I mean, Sharan, you would know in Australia, it's probably the same in the US, is that as the head of the brokerage, you can recommend stuff, but then it's up to the individual agents as to whether they want to take it up. But I'm just worried you might have answered that question already by saying, well, you can just type into a command line, how much should I earn? And that's probably one of the most important questions an agent could ask. Actually. It's a great point as from an adoption perspective. So I'll give you a different perspective on this. The first way, and hopefully this is helpful to all brokerages and agencies that are listening to this, when an agent joins a brokerage, the general question that they ask is, hey, Sharon, can you give me a list of who to go to for what? Hey, who do I go to for my marketing? Who do I go to for my new listings? Who do I go to to get my payments process, et cetera? And that onboarding process is very painful because now an agent feels like, well, I don't know the process. Therefore, I kind of have to try to maneuver around it. And the simplest approach we changed that to as Pratesh technology brokerage, we said, well, what does a technology company do? They say, hey, for everything, go to support. That's it. So now we beefed up the support team and we said, whatever question you have may be where your transactions are or how you want to get paid or do you want to know when Sharon's next seminar is, you go to support for everything. Now, the crazy part here, Sam, was that what support was doing was they were just receiving the question, going into the system that we already have, looking up the data and turning around and responding to it. Now, uh, there's also some human delays when it comes to support. So Sam emails at 9 a.m. in the morning, support picks it up at 10 a.m., support responds at 11 a.m. Well, Sam's busy with clients from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. So Sam picks it up at 3 p.m., responds to support. Well, support doesn't get it until the next morning. So now because of that, we say, wow, support's too slow. So now how we got adoption is we said, hey, right on the app, and we'd love to give you a screenshot or a demo of it right on the app, Pratesh and the team built this little blue wavy bar that always hangs out on all the screens. And so we said, you can either email support or just hit Leo and ask Leo the question because support's going to actually ask the system, but Leo can just ask the system for you at 11 p.m. at night. So we said, if you want a faster answer, ask Leo. And so we have an internal hashtag that we talk about. So whenever someone asks us a question, we say, hashtag OTA, which is hashtag open the app. And that's our answer to everything, which is hashtag open the app. And now people are starting to realize from an adoption perspective. So Pratesh just told me this morning, we're roughly getting 800 plus inquiries to Leo every single day. And if you think about that, that's somewhere between three to five full-time support people answering questions. That's 800 inquiries that some human had to answer and that the agent got the response in real time. And that's what we're super, super excited about. That's what drove adoption. With Real, there's a special thing. And the special thing is that in order to do business at Real, you have to use our app. It's not an optional thing. So oftentimes I get asked, how many people adopt your technology? And I'm always confused. What does this even mean? How many people adopt our technology? Like, and I say 100%. And they're like, what do you mean 100%? That can't be true. Like no brokerage gets 100% adoption. I'm like, well, if they're doing this business, if they're selling transactions, the only way they're going to sell transactions, they open our app. And then further, like, you know, getting better adoption on Leo. Step one was that blue wave function. You click on it and you ask. But then Leo got trained. So that was our big deal, which was eight months later, Leo knew what you were going to ask 
before you ask, because we knew where your transaction is. We knew what you've done in the past and all the other things that everybody else is doing. So we could predict that you're here now to ask where's your money or you're here now because it's close to the closing date. You know, we know the most likely question you're going to ask. So the app will just suggest, Leo will just suggest that question and they just tap on it to get started. So that rocketed 4X our adoption overnight. So is, is this the feature of CRM? Yeah, Pratesh has a really great idea, by the way. I'll give away parts of it. And the idea is that the question we ask internally is, wouldn't it be amazing if blank, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could do blank? And so the CRM question often is, hey, tell me how many of the people that I have in my CRM are going to sell their home in the next 12 months? Great. So there are tools out there that can somewhat give you some guidance around that. But the problem is every single agent right now, maybe in the US or in Australia or New Zealand, has access to some piece of technology that is predictive. We call it predictive analytics, right? Now, if I have a list of 100 people that I think may be selling their home, the reason why most agents don't do something with it is they don't know what to send them. That's the problem. Or they don't know how to communicate with them. And it's not good or bad. It's like, oh, I got this list, man. Yeah, if I said this, would I be too aggressive? If I said this, is it not aggressive enough? Am I going to waste my time actually doing a marketing campaign on this? Now that makes sense because now we can actually tell Leo to say, hey, now Leo, create me a marketing campaign for each person on this list. That gets significantly more fun, right? And so now you can use the technology to actually help you as opposed to leave you stuck. That's amazing. And I mean, look, I've seen some of your campaigns and marketing ideas and things like that. And I think that must be a complete game changer for the people working within the brokerage. I'm going to ask a really nerdy question now, if that's okay. So it's probably a Pratesh question. When I talk to people in Australia about chat GPT and other sort of AI tools, the concerns that come up are number one is, you know, what happens with my data? And two is how do you keep it secure? So we do have a couple of really forward thinking agencies here, like Toop and Toop and people like that who have done similar things to what you guys have done. But let's just say, Pratesh, like I come in and say, all right, tell me how much money I've earned this year. How does that get kept separate to say what Sharan's earned? Like, how do you guarantee that I'm not going to get Sharan's results and that it's not going to, you know, leak out onto the internet somehow? Yeah, this is a great question. So <clears throat> I'll go very specific. I'll literally tell you how we do it, right? So we built our infrastructure from ground up. Like we own it, right? Soup to nuts. So every user is protected by its own authentication and the data and the APIs are are already designed so that there's no data leakage, right? So if you log in and say my profile, you're only going to see your stuff. You're not going to see somebody else's stuff. When we launch Leo, we actually use the same authentication token that you get when you log in. So literally Leo actually doesn't have access to anybody else's data. It's seriously like a personal concierge, right? However, that's step one. That means like, okay, when answering question, it only has access to your data because it's literally not possible for it to access, have access because we made it on top of our API, not under our API. That's one. However, the other question, which was privacy related, like, you know, depending on the provider you're using, you are hoping that they don't misuse this data, right? So there is obviously the chat GPTs of the world, like OpenAI owns that. Microsoft has an enterprise option for it, right? Azure, that will host a, a different GPT version for you. And you can self-host. So you can take Llama 2 or any of the other options that are out there. You can download it and host it yourself. So we're doing basically all of that. At some point in the future, we'll completely self-host when we are fine-tuning our LLMs. At the moment, it's a mix. 
So you are governed by the terms of service and the privacy disclosures of these big corporations, obviously. But so is the case everywhere else. So let me explain what that means. We use Microsoft for our accounting, right? All our accounting data is stored by them. So it's equally the same problem if you think about it. Like we're worried about the question that we are sending to Microsoft today, but they already have our database of all our accounting and every agent name, social security numbers, and all the transactions. So the data is already there with a big corporation. However, I will say that there are some pieces that are not there. And if an average agent was using it, they should think about an example would be create me an email for my customer who's going to buy a house. They only have 24 hours. His wife is traveling to Sydney and they have $2 million in their bank. And this is what they need, $2.2 million. And you're sending this all over to like OpenAI. Now you've given them way more personal information than we do because you've been very specific. You've given travel times. You might give names. You might give email addresses. You're now very specific about like what's happening in a real life situation. Listen, I don't, I'm not implying that open data, open AI is going to like take a look at this and like start stalking, you know, this person, but you are sending someone else's information over to a third party as an intermediary, right? So there is some responsibility there. I think over the next year, there's going to be a serious year, year or two years, typically slower. Two years, there's going to be serious like implications on copyright and privacy. You know, we talked about privacy, but copyright also is a big issue, right? Like where, what the responses you're getting could be created by sources that they are not authorized to use, which I'm pretty sure exists right now. Now, are you implicated when you use those responses, right? So that's another thing. Yeah, we're seeing that with the New York Times at the moment, aren't we, with that big exactly. court case. It's unthinkable to think that ChatGPT could gain so much ground and then perhaps not, you know, not exist if, you know, the outcome of the court case is, is unfavorable. I don't know that that'll happen. I think, but... yeah, it's tricky. Like, I, I don't know about the unfavorability of it, but like if you really think about it, like maybe 60 to 65% of the corpus that, that GPT is trained on is Wikipedia, which is public information, dictionaries and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of good knowledge out there where that makes GPT truly smart. New York Times content is more news content. And sure, there's some dimensionality that the model could lose, but it goes into like this ethical question that I was talking to my wife the other day and I was trying to explain the situation. And I was like, you teach all your, your kids all this knowledge that you've learned. Like you read a book that you bought for like, say, 50 bucks. You learn, you digest that information and you teach your kid like a bunch of stuff. Now, that's derivative knowledge. Like I've derived knowledge out of it and I'm like teaching my kids something. Now, just because that's a human being, I don't owe any licensing fees. But if Chad GPT does it at scale, there is licensing attached to this. Because you can say it's like derived knowledge and derived value, right? So my kid is going to learn and use those skills in real life and have income. Same as Chad GPT. They are you know, taking the derived value or knowledge and selling it out and making income. I think this is true check of humanity on how fast we're going to progress. Like in my world, I don't think anything is owed to New York Times. Yeah, it's definitely going to be an interesting year in AI. I saw a tweet recently that says, you know, we're at the bottom of the exponential curve and 2024 is going to be an epic year. And I do kind of believe that. Sam, I have one thought that I think it would be beneficial for folks to hear, especially your audience to hear. And I'll actually post a question to Pratesh because I asked him this when we started working on Leo and I said, well, hey, I've been using ChatGPT ever since it came out. What is the big difference? Like what gives us the advantage? Because I wanted to understand it first because if I'm the spokesperson for our business, I want to explain it 
with integrity and explain it the right way. And maybe Pratish can explain this and, you know, the difference between having plumbed data and having our own data and how if someone who's listening wants to build something like this in their enterprise, maybe this thinking model will help them. So Pratish, I don't know if you can explain, hey, how the query starts, how we package up their personal information, how it's sent to LLM, how it comes back, how it's reparsing. Like if you can explain that, I think it'll really give people a sense of what the value of proprietary data is. Sure. I think it's a combination. It's not just data. It's also the interface. So let me explain. Before I answer that question, I'll explain like another aspect of building an engaging bot that does something meaningful. If you put ChatGPT in front of someone and you say, let me show you what this can do. And I've done this many times. Let me show you. This is the most amazing technology you're going to see. Let me show you what this can do, right? And I do like three or four demos. I turn my computer on, ask something. They don't know what to ask. They just stare. They don't know where to start. They don't know what to ask. They don't know what to type because they don't believe the fact that it could like actually understand anything you type. They just like, they're not there, right? And even when they do, two days later, they have stopped using it because the use cases are very limited, right? So when I say limited, meaning it's very purposeful use cases when it comes to business, right? So when it comes to us, we had to not only build the technology, but the interface in a way where we have to feed or suggest questions to our users in a meaningful way for them to start the dialogue with the bot because they don't know what to ask. And they're just like, what can I even ask this thing, right? I think like one of our biggest innovations was to build an interface and the suggestion engine that was learning from their behavior to suggest what to ask in the first place. That was one innovation. The second was easier because once we had built that interface, if you use Leo, you're going to see it's not like a traditional chatbot where you just keep asking questions. It's actually an interactive chatbot, which means you say, where's my money? It will actually give you UI elements saying, which transaction do you mean? And then it will give you buttons that you can click on, right? So the reason to do that was nobody actually wants to type an address. In real life, they don't do that. They don't actually say where is, and they type in a whole address and nobody will ever type in a full address. They will only say one, two, three, Banana Street because that's all they remember. Like the county and the state and the province and the zip code and in the perfect format, nobody's ever going to do this. So in order for your technology to get adopted, I think you have to first think about what's the interface for your audience. And that could be different in many cases, right? And then obviously the, pl the exact plumbing of it. So now that you know that you ask us a question, we actually understand the meaning of it. So we vectorize the meaning of this thing. It's called vectorizing. It's hard to believe, but it literally translates it into a standard meaning database that we have. So you can ask, where's my money? When am I going to get my money? How do I get my money? All of these mean the same thing. In English, it might mean different, but to the LLM, it means that it's the same topic about the inquiry about money. So when we trigger that topic, we then follow up with a bunch of API calls to like gather data and we build context in real time. Then we feed it to the LLM with a bunch of other data saying, rephrase this and ask them nicely and then capture more data. And there's a whole dialogue that goes back and forth. So it takes a lot of architecture. But I think like if you ask us, what's the innovation? The innovation was building a framework that was programmable. So we don't do this on a case-by-case -case basis. We've built a whole architecture and framework to plug this thing as things go by. So we released our V2 version in August. We haven't like changed anything. It does more and more things, but it's all configurable. Right. So if I'm doing a good job, you know, that's how it's a high level. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess while we're sort of having, 
you know, these nerdy type conversations. I've just sold a house. And you mentioned, you know, the platform that you originally built. I still can't believe that, you know, from one end of the transaction to the other, you're not, you know, like I think I counted like 20 tools that we used along the way between everything from WhatsApp to DocuSign to, you know, filling in bank documents to all the rest of it. I know you two guys are super innovative and you're probably thinking about this already. So I'm going to ask the question, where do you see the future of that heading? Like, are we as consumers going to get a single platform anytime soon? I'll start the answer, but Pratesh has the full answer. So I will say this, agencies in Australia, New Zealand and brokerages in the US and Canada and other parts of the world have spent all this time with this phrase called agent-centric. And we've heard some version of this, which is, hey, we're agent-centric, we're agent-centric, we're agent-centric, which is good. What else could you or should you be? Nothing, like you should be agent-centric. But the bigger part of being agent-centric is actually derived from what agents really want. And that is consumer centricity. So if we as the agency or the brokerage are truly agent-centric, that means we understand what the consumer does, what the consumer needs to do, the consumer's journey, and help put the agent in the middle of that transaction while being consumer-centric. That the deepest form of agent-centricity is being deeply consumer-aware, not saying, hey, I'm the agency, I'm the brokerage, I'm just going to stay in the background, and hey, Sam, you the agent, you can go do whatever you want, you figure it out. And so one of the big chunk that we want to take out of this industry is that we want to build a direct-to-consumer app and a platform that puts the agent in the middle. And we launched kind of baseline, the first version of that, because in our world, the finance component, before people get to actually start their home search, they figure out how much can they spend and can they get the right financing associated with it. So hopefully that's a good starting point for the consumer app. No, Absolutely. I mean, you know, you've been in the industry to know that there are so many dead bodies in this graveyard, right? It's just many people have tried to build the, the quote-unquote mythical super app, right? And we're also trying, but I think the difference between us and most of the other people who have tried, it's either they are, you know, what I call plumbers, where they have like plumbed a bunch of stuff, right? And the problem is if it's not the perfect experience, it's dead on arrival because you're competing with the Zillows of the world, right? Two. Is it the full experience? And this is the challenging part about real estate. Real estate is maybe one of the most complex transactions and the longest transactions that exist, right? So what's the shortest transaction that can exist in a business context is a ATM withdrawal. You put your card in, you get your money, the transaction is done, right? No changing your mind. You get your money in your hand, you want more, you withdraw more, you took too much, you go back to the bank and you deposit, right? That transaction is over. Versus in real estate, a 35-day transaction, which is like maybe the average length in the US, every day, two things could be changing and dates could be getting pushed back and forth, like all sorts of crazy stuff could be happening, right? So we want to keep the agent in the middle. However, what are the different kind of pieces that go along and what's the right sequence in which we have to launch them, right? And at the same time, it's a corporation that needs to bring two kinds of value, value to the consumers and value to the shareholders. Right. So you have to prioritize them in the right feature, right order as well. So in our mind, we launched our first version, which was like Sharon mentioned, a pre-approval, which is basically a full mortgage application, but it pre-approves so you can start working with our agents. Now, very soon after that, we're going to go into different aspects of like of the real estate transaction. But we are focused on the buy side. So for us, you know, we've thought about this quite a bit. Like on the listing side, the agent does a lot of work. 
but the seller, you know, has to sign a bunch of documents and get out of the house when the agent is showing you the house, at least in the US, right? And make sure that they clear the liens or whatever, if there's anything else, but that's kind of it. On the buy side, the agent shows you houses after houses after houses after houses. So you got to collect feedback. You got to like, you know, keep up with that. Scheduling around those houses. Once you've nailed it down, now you have to help them with the mortgage application, with getting the right title company in the US and then getting all the paperwork done and all of that stuff, right? So there's a lot that happens along the way. How can you create an interface and experience that's comprehensive, but still simple at the same time? And that's like, I think the challenge. However, we do think that the generation that's going to buy 10 years from now is going to be the TikTok generation or the Instagram generation, right? And the current apps are not are not for them. Will they put up with it? Sure. I mean, everybody puts up with it because of, they have to purchase a home. But I think there's opportunity. So from our perspective, like, can we build something that's beautiful, modern, and simple to use that simplifies the whole transaction? And I know it's not the same as like making it like Amazon, like one-click purchase. I know it's not there. But can it be 10 clicks? Can it be like 20 clicks or can it be five clicks, right? Like, I, I mean, can we bring it under 15 clicks? I don't know. I think the goal is to like reduce the total number, the complexity portion of this thing. I'll make one comment about this, Sam. I think the hard part that after being both an investor in several prop tech startups and running agency brokerage model, a big part of why I'm a real and why I love working with Pratesh is that I believe that it's very hard for a non-agency or brokerage-related firm to start a super app because you don't have the transaction volume. You don't have the agent feedback. You don't have like agent reciprocity and control. You don't have any of that. And your incentives are not aligned. So everyone that is non-agency or brokerage-related, yes, they have industry perspective, but the nuances of how it happens is very difficult. So for us, we're fortunate. We have 14,000 agents in all 50 states in the US and in Canada. We can tell you like there's provinces, there's like 15 miles over from where I live. The transaction happens completely differently. And we have to already solve for that on the agency brokerage model. We already have to solve for that because that's how an agent gets paid. But if a third-party proctor company has to come and try to build that, they have to solve it for every single location while that is not their business model. And this, Sam, I think is the biggest insight shift for me. And this is what Patesh and I talk about often is the idea of Lego blocks. We are very fortunate to have built 50 Lego blocks in the 50 U.S. states and four Lego blocks for the four U.S. You know, Canadian provinces. And you know, in the U.S., we have this concept called the MLSs. So they are these organized bodies of real estate where data gets connected with. So we had to build all the Lego blocks around managing those. We had to build all the Lego blocks around managing payments. We had to build the Lego blocks around taxes in a certain state. So I'll give you a simple example. The city of Los Angeles has a Los Angeles city tax. Well, we need to know that because that's how we pay our agents. Well, a third-party prop tech company would completely miss that and it's super hard to build a integrated solution. So I think we're fortunate because we've gotten a chance to build a lot of these Lego blocks along the way. Now integrating a seamless experience is not easy. It's a little easier, little bit easier because you're still in the search of this mythical super app. So I'd say we're fortunate to be in that place where we're going to continuously keep building these Lego blocks and those Lego blocks allow us to manifest Leo. Those Lego blocks allow us to build attraction CRM for our agents. Those Lego blocks allow us to build a transaction platform. Those Lego blocks allow us to have, you know, the tax records be done. So those Lego blocks, I think, are the key. And if, Sam, you and I wanted to start something today, you and I have to build a lot of Lego blocks for the next two years to get to where we are. And I think that's what gives us a little bit of an advantage. Yeah, amazing. 
Well, I've got sort of one second last question to ask you both, and that is, let's flip this over to the consumer side of things and the property search from a consumer side. So, Pratesh, you just mentioned Zillow. What do you see happening on the portal side, if you like, how a consumer's search for an agent or a property going to change in this new age of AI? This is one of those feature versus product conversations. And I'll be brutal about this. I don't know if people buy properties the way AI think it should be bought. So let me explain. If I'm in Florida in a specific space where I'm looking for a home, my search criteria is four bedrooms, three bathrooms, house, right? In a specific neighborhood, in a specific budget, as soon as I put that in, there are eight homes on the market. But I don't go saying, show me a home that has a Starbucks next to it. That's just not how people buy homes. They already know what the home is, and it's an emotional purchase. So even when we find a home, you go there and you realize, well, this is not it, right? So the thing is, like, I think property search, in my opinion, is a solved problem. I am not convinced if there is an AI element to, like, improving the search experience. I think people want that control. Like, I want to see three bedrooms. You could type it in, like, show me three bedroom homes in like downtown St. Pete, Florida. Sure. But all that is is a parameterization of the two drop downs that already exist in Zillow. I don't think that's innovation, right? So I think that's part of the answer. However, can AI be used in improving the experience of looking at a property? And I think there is something there, right? AI tools to build 3D videos for me, possibly me wearing a quest from Facebook and like walking through the property. Those kind of things are are probably more interesting. But like the search experience, I think it's just done. It hasn't improved in the last 20 years because it was a problem at one point. It was solved and, and I think that's it. I'm not sure if there is more to be done there. Yeah, I'm actually in agreement, Sam. I will tell you, I completely agree with how Pitesh approaches. I think there's a search experience and then there's the validation experience. And to me, the validation experience is exactly what Pitesh is talking about. So let's say, you know, I search for in realestate.com.au, I search for a three bedroom, three bath in Sydney, right? And I get, you know, kind of 30 available homes for sale. What I would love to do is to say, hey, you know what? I have done an inventory of all my belongings in my house, my furniture, my all of this. Can you replace my stuff in eight of these houses? And I want to see what that looks like. I want to take my personalization of my life and see what it looks like. Now that is validation on whether that fits my criteria right? That's very interesting to me. And now if it says, hey, my children go to these three schools and it does a map of, hey, here are 10, 15 different restaurants. Now that let me have it validate how I live my life, not let me search for how I'm going to live my life. I think the search component, Pratesh is exactly right. You search for that criteria, you get to see it. But I think there's a validation experience that AI can really benefit. But that is really powerful that I think is not so far away. And just the fact that you can do augmented reality with staging and things like that, if AI can currently already do that, I think we're very close to having it say, hey, take all my furniture, put it in all these houses and tell me how it would look. And that significantly validates whether it's your vibe or not. I will say one thing about what he just mentioned, right? If you did go down that path of take my furniture and put it and show me what it was, this is like an immediate agent value add. As a buyer agent, I would go in and I would take pictures of all the couches and the beds and everything else because even though AI can do it, you still need good photos. You still need to take it the right way and stuff like that. Or even if it's a very advanced tool, maybe it's a video that you walk around in, the, in your customer's home, in your buyer's home, 
and then it extracts all the furniture pieces. And then every time you send them a property, it shows them their furniture in it. I think there's some value there, right? And that's like a reimagined way of looking at it. However, is the buyer technology capable enough to like do that exact thing? Like, you know, results may vary, right? Yeah, that would be a really interesting proposition, actually. Mine's going a million miles an hour at the moment. But I guess what we better do is kind of wrap it up because I could talk to you guys all day and I probably had better keep it to under an hour. Just I ask all of our guests a question to end the podcast. So Pratesh, I might start with you. There was one thing we've covered so much ground today and I just want to thank you for sharing your knowledge. If there was one thing that you want people to remember or take action on from this podcast, what would it be? I would say try things. Try as many tools as you can and find your three hammers, like Sharan was saying. You know, I don't think AI is here to replace people, especially real estate agents. I think they are good concierges, right? Or good assistants for you to do your job more efficiently and get you more hours back. So I think just be more open to trying new things out and see where it goes. Yeah, great advice. Sharon, what about you? I have something of a similar vein, but I know that most people are, as you're getting into it, they're unsure about what they can and can't do. What can AI do for me? How does it actually work? Does it apply to me in my life? And I like to expand my possibilities. So my offer would be, whenever you see or hear about a piece of AI, don't do anything. Don't learn anything. Don't touch it. Just go to their website and hit play on the demo video. Because I am such a big fan of watching these demos. Because when I see a demo, it brings something to life that I never thought possible. And I think that's what Pradesh said about us having the opportunity to solve the interface problem. Like we actually have to recommend to the user what they should type in the prompt. And I think that we're not AI natives. Like my children, they just naturally talk to Alexa for everything. That's just so strange to me. Like we didn't grow up talking to, you know, a voice bot in any way. But I think that everyone that's born or entering the world now are AI natives. They are very familiar with all these tools and they think all of this is normal. Like no one's even surprised that you can do the things that we never thought possible. So I'm a big fan and I'll actually tell you my late evening secret is right before I go to bed every night, watch a lot of these AI demo videos. And I'm like, wow, the demo opens up my mind to what is actually possible. So if you can just watch more AI demo videos, they're not very long. I think it'll stitch together where you can get these three hammers. It'll stitch together new possibilities for you. And and I think that allows us to imagine a bigger and better future. So that one thing can really open your mind. Yeah, amazing. Great advice. Sharan, Pratesh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to Connect Now. To stay in touch with all things Elite Agent, sign up for our daily newsletter, The Brief, at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. 